So Abby and Brittany Hensel were born on March 7th, 1990. They were born with two heads, two spines, two completely separate spinal cords, two arms, originally three, but one had to be removed, one rib cage, two breasts, two hearts, and a shared circulatory system, four lungs, one diaphragm, two stomachs, two gallbladders, one liver, a small intestine, one large intestine, three kidneys, one bladder, one set of reproductive organs, and two legs all in one body. And the difficulty in this is certainly in the physiological or the physical difficulties that they have to deal with every day, right? can't imagine what it would be like to have to live your life like this day in and day out. But even more difficult might be the decisions that have to go into how to handle certain situations like this, these conjoined twins, right? Think about this. What about marriage? How do you handle marriage between conjoined twins? Can they marry two separate people? Do they have to marry one person? What about the difficulty of having children? There's a lot of questions that go into this that are difficult to discern, right? Difficult to make decisions on. I'm sure it's even stirring up emotion in you right now, trying to think, well, how would I answer that question? Would I give them wisdom on how to marry? Would I be able to give them wisdom on how to marry, how to have children? Or I think about my friend Caleb, who uh, is only 30 years old and just had to make the decision of letting his wife either live or pass on with difficulty of cancer. It had gotten worse and worse. She was only 28 years old, or excuse me, 26 years old, and had gotten cancer multiple times. It went into remission, came back, and finally they were in the hospital and were given very, very um, grim news. And so Caleb had to make the decision of leaving his wife on respiratory or taking her off, knowing how much pain she was in. These are just a couple of small examples of the difficult, difficult decisions that we're called to make as believers on a daily basis, right? Nevertheless, that does not give us an out because it's difficult to shirk our responsibility to make these difficult decisions, to respond to difficult um, situations and circumstances. The fact of the matter is the ability to be discerning is given to us from God and is required of us each day as we make both simple and difficult decisions, right? Every single day. And the point is, we need maturity when it comes to biblical discernment. We need to grow in this area of sanctification as we are faced with difficult choices every single day. So what I want us to do today is to look into this biblical discernment and define it and understand how we're to respond to it. So I'll start by asking you guys this. When I say the word discernment, what do you think that means? You guys define the word discernment. What does it mean? Deciding between right and wrong. Absolutely. What else? Do you think that that's it? Do you think that that's a complete definition? What's right and what seems right. The perception of what's real, right? Absolutely. What else? Go ahead. Okay, given by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. 
Let's listen to a couple of definitions here. According to the world, it may sound like this. This is a feel-good one. The ability to feel or perceive something with the mind and the senses, right? I'm from Colorado. There's a bunch of hippies there. They would totally get that. The ability to feel or perceive something with the mind and the senses. What can I grasp? What can I experience? Or perception of that which is obscure, right? What seems to be real, what seems to be true or right or wrong. Most commonly in the church, it sounds like something like this, the ability to, to decide between right and wrong. Or maybe prayerful decision-making. I hope that that's part of your definition, that when we're discerning, we want to seek the Lord's guidance, right? And while these are necessary parts of discernment, they are lacking in the fullness, I believe, of what is required to be discerning. They are single portions of, uh, or parts to a greater whole. And I want you guys to hear this definition. It's kind of a long one, so I've got it up here for you. You can follow along. And this is Al Mohler commenting about Jonathan Edwards' perspective on biblical discernment. This is very, very helpful. It says this, Edwards recognizes that human beings are driven by passions and that passions are often the source of our decision-making. For Edwards, passions are the sudden instinctive responses not informed by the mind. They are the unthought-out knee-jerk reactions to situations. Affections, on the other hand, are controlled by the mind and operate powerfully to shape the decisions we make. Edwards describes them as vigorous inclinations by which we are, ne- we are either inclined toward or away from things. It is affections which spring from the mind that drive our choices. Affections, however, can be good or bad. Worldly affections are thought-out responses to situations and ideas that operate powerfully to incline our decisions away from the ways, purposes, and knowledge of God. Religious or holy affections, on the other hand, are generated by the Spirit who operates through our minds to invigorate godly inclinations that enable and cause us to choose the path of godliness. If this is so, then we humans make decisions either through being driven by one, our passions that pay no attention to the mind, those knee-jerk reactions, right? Two, affections which are no less strong than passions, but which come from a considered application of the mind where we can choose either, or where we can choose either. Or three, worldly affections which disincline us to follow God, or religious affections which come from a mind that has been impacted by the Holy Spirit so that our whole being is inclined to, to and seeks to align itself to God and his revelation. In order to grow in discernment, it is necessary for us to move from passion-based decisions to holy affection-based decision-making. We must grow in knowledge so that our decisions are based on religious affections, not on merely emotions. Now, I know that's a lot, but I think it's very helpful. I think it's very clear. It's distinguishing those knee-jerk reactions of when you're on your way here to church in the morning and somebody cuts you off and you get upset and you respond, you honk your horn, you do whatever. Or like my dear brother who, again, knew that his wife had been dealing with this difficulty for so long, for years and years and years, and who had saturated himself in the Word and was prepared to make a difficult decision. This is the difference here. But don't miss out what we're saying here, that uh, affections can either be worldly or religious. 
They can be driven by one or the other. And so based on this definition, we see that discernment is far more than simple decision-making, right? Yes, it is deciding between right and wrong, but it's more than that. Even the world makes decisions and hard choices, right? However, as a Christian, we are to make decisions based on an affection for God and His Word. Affection for God is what should drive our decision-making. An affection that shapes and molds the Christian's way of thinking and decision-making. An affection for Christ, driven by Christ, that is driven by the knowledge of the gospel and informed by the Bible, right? Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, and of the Holy One is insight. If we want to have good uh, discernment, if we want to have biblical or spiritual discernment, we need to first fear the Lord and trust that He is the beginning of wisdom. He is the drive behind our wisdom, our discernment. Tim Challies has a book on this, wonderful book on discernment. I'd recommend getting it for sure. But he defines discernment as this. I think this is spot on. Discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. He says it's a skill. He's absolutely right. We learn it. We have to become mature in it. We, when we're saved, don't automatically understand truth from error. 100% we're perfect in every way. But we grow as we fail and we learn, right? The Lord is gracious to bring us along slowly. So it's a skill a skill of understanding, we're able to break down the decision-making. We're able to grasp it as we start to understand these different situations. But more than that, it's applying this knowledge. It's applying this skill that we're learning. You're able to take, it, take the knowledge of God's Word, understanding, and use it to act upon our decision-making. It's not merely, as James says, hearing the Word, but doing the Word, right? Responding to the Word. Again, discernment is not just between right and wrong, but between what honors the Lord and what doesn't. It's between what pleases Him and what doesn't please Him, right? Decisions that are based on truth versus false or true and not true. And so this morning, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into this. We're going to look at two main aspects of discernment. We're going to break those down as well. First, we're going to look at the fact that discernment is wisdom informed by God's Word. Wisdom informed by God's Word. And then we're going to see, second, that discernment is an application of the wisdom found in God's Word. So first, discernment is wisdom shaped by God's Word. The world today would offer many definitions of truth, right? Or no definition in some cases. There is no absolute truth. There is no definition of truth. To some, truth is subjective. It's whatever it means to you or whatever it means to me. The individual world of preference and opinion. Others believe truth is a collective judgment. If most of us agree on this, it must be true. It's not just an individual thing, but it's a collective thing. The product of cultural consensus, right? If we all believe this, it must be true. And still others flatly deny the concept of truth altogether. There is no absolute truth. 
whatever they believe, whatever the world believes about their definition of truth, it drives them and causes them to think in the way that they do, right? Give me some examples of how the world thinks and what decisions may be informed by that. What do you guys think of? What do you guys think of? Give me some examples. Media, absolutely. What about this, abortions? Absolutely. A woman, they believe the truth of the matter is. The truth of the matter is, is that a woman has the right to choose, right? It's her body. We would vehemently disagree with that as believers. What else? What about divorces? Legalization of drugs. All kinds of things are informed by the world and what they think and what they believe is true. And as Christians are no different in that we too make choices every day, we need to understand the differences. We need to understand and define truth. So let me ask you this. What are some things that you have to be discerning about on a daily basis? Give me some examples. Entertainment. Man, that has got to be one of the biggest ones, right? Talk about a cultural influence. What else? Say that again. How to live with family members. members. Absolutely. What else? Friends. Friends, Relationships. Absolutely. Who are we to associate with? Who are we to not associate with? What else? Money. That's right. Absolutely. Where does your money go? That's a very clear indicator on most accounts. What else? Career choices. What to wear, what to eat, right? You could say anything and everything that you make a decision on every single day is an opportunity for discernment. And that's not an overstatement. What does 1 Corinthians 10.31 say? So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it doesn't matter what you're doing. You have to make a decision and it has to be informed by Scripture. And these are typically easy decisions to make, but what about the difficult ones? How am I going to encourage the friend that I know is living in sin? How do I respond to my children or my wife? How do I respond to my difficult boss? How do I respond to uh, a loss? All these different things. Things that are much more difficult than just your day-to-day routine stuff. What is fundamentally different between us and the world, however, is our definition of truth. So first, we need to The first thing we need to do when pursuing biblical discernment is to have a proper definition of truth. So discernment is wisdom shaped by God's word and requires a definition of truth. Oh, it's not even working. First, it requires a proper definition of truth. Flip over to John 14, 6. John 14, 6. John 14, 6 through 7 says this Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. So, what does this tell us about our definition of truth? What do you guys think? Based on these verses, what does this have to do with, re- with uh, defining a proper definition of truth? 
Jesus is the truth. Absolutely. Truth, therefore, is God, right? There we go. John MacArthur says this about truth. Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Even more to the point, truth is the self-existent or self-expression of God. He goes on. Truth cannot be adequately explained, recognized, understood, or defined without God as the source. Since he alone is eternal and self-existent and he alone is the creator of all else, he is the fountain of all truth. If you don't believe that, try defining truth without reference to God and see how quickly all such definitions fail. The moment you begin to ponder the essence of truth, you are brought face to face with the requirement of a universal absolute, the eternal reality of God. Conversely, the whole concept of truth instantly becomes nonsense, and every imagination of the human heart therefore turns to sheer foolishness as soon as people attempt to remove the thought of God from their minds. So God does not simply speak truth. He indeed does do that. His word is truth, right? Everything that's in Scripture is truth. But rather, He is truth. He is, as He says, the fountainhead. He is the source. God is truth. Jesus is truth. So with that in mind, we know that anything that comes from God is nothing less than that which is perfect and pure and fully true. So I'll ask you, how does this affect us and how we think? What do you think? How does this affect us and our, our, our thought process and how we're to discern? What do you guys think? Absolutely. Absolutely. What else? Think like Christ. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean wear a WWJD bracelet either, right? Think of this. We can trust everything, everything that comes from Scripture because we know that there is no error found in it. If it's wholly true, wholly perfect, it makes all of Scripture reliable and worthy of following, right? Again, this is what completely separates us from the world. They have no final definition of truth or they do have one and it's a false one. But what we have is without error. It's perfect. It's whole. It's complete. It's reliable. It's not tainted by man. And even more than that, it means that we must adhere to it and follow it and allow it to shape our way of thinking, right? Go to John 17. John 17. This... One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I guess you could probably say that about most passages, right? I love this portion of Scripture. Jesus here, the high priestly prayer, praying to the Father, directly to Him, knowing what's impending, what's coming. And we'll pick up in verse 12, and He says this, While I was with them, I kept them in Your name, speaking about those who are of God, which You have given to Me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy, my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. There's that clear distinction we're talking about here. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we see here that what Christ is saying is we have been given the full truth. We are to be sanctified and we're to be set apart from it. We're to be changed by it. And more than that, he's saying, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them there. Keep them from the evil one. And how, do we, how are we kept from the evil one? Well, by being completely contra- contrary to him, by being sanctified in the truth, by his word, which is the truth. And so we know that this is where our source comes from. This is where our source of sanctification is. And this is where our proper definition of truth is, right? Through his word, from Christ and from God himself. If then that we know that we are if then we know that we are to indeed be in the world, we need to fasten ourselves with as Ephesians 6:14 says, the belt of truth. Gird up your loins with the belt of truth, right? Because we know that we are going to be left in the world. Next. Ah. Next, discernment is shaped by God's word and it requires a renewing of the mind. A renewing of the mind. Flip over to Romans 12.2. Romans 12.2. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul here expresses first the negative form of thinking, right? Which is conforming to the world. He says, do not be conformed to this world. The warning here is that as a new creature in Christ, we are not to be influenced by the thinking of the world, but in the positive sense, We are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, right? The idea of putting off and putting on, that we shed ourselves of how the world thinks, our old thought process, right? And we put on this new way of thinking. And think about some of these examples. What about trials? How does the world respond to trials? Well, frustration, grief, sadness. What about marriage? It's not a holy uh, agreement anymore. It's not a covenant between a man and a woman. It's between whatever you can imagine. And it's not seen as sacred. It's just seen as an agreement between two people or two things or however you want to define it. And just as easily as you can get married, you can get divorced. What about parenting? I was just reading in the news the other day about a mom who had neglected her three-year-old daughter for all of three years and They finally found this little girl at the home. She was only 14 pounds at three years old, and the mom just continued to neglect her. Was working in a pretty uh, heinous work work uh, work lifestyle. So parenting is clearly different in the world. What about work? So many different ways. We, as believers, are called to be subject to our masters, and that's not the way that the world thinks, right? 
school, relationships, anything else that you can think of, we have got to shed ourselves of the way that the world thinks. This requires a renewing of the mind, it says here, right? James Montgomery Boyce says this, the word secular comes closest to what Paul says here when he refers to the pattern of this world. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. There is a right way to be secular, of course. Christians live in the world and are therefore rightly concerned about the world's affairs. We don't need to be ignorant or foolish. We certainly need to be aware of what's going on. But secularism, James Montgomery Boyce is more than this. It is a philosophy that does not look beyond this world, but instead operates as if this is the age, if the age is all that there is. And it's sad to think that the world has no capacity to think past this, right? They have no other capacity to think other than this is what's going on now and this is all I can handle. This is the difficulty. They have no capacity to think in any other way than that which is immediate and fleeting. That knee-jerk reaction. This nearsighted and narrow-minded view leads to confusion, chaos, dissension, and so many other issues. Just look at media. Watch the news for five minutes and see that this is very clear. Shootings, murders, killings, just so much chaos and dissension, and it's all caused by people who can't see past what's going on right in front of them. It's everywhere. But in contrast, Paul says that this is not the way that Christians are to make judgments and decisions, right? Rather, the believer is to be focused on what Scripture says to inform decision-making. So let's take a look at some of these other things. Trials, whereas the world will become confused and frustrated and saddened, right? Romans 5 says, stand and rejoice, believer, in these trials and these difficulties. Peter says, persevere in these trials and difficulties. What about marriage? Ephesians 5 is very clear how we're to conduct ourselves as husbands, wives, parents. What about work? 1 Peter. Servants, be subject to your master. Romans 13. If you live in a society, be subject to the authorities that God has placed above you. Relationships. Go all over Scripture how to handle relationships. Philippians. Romans 16, right? Romans 18, excuse me how to deal with brothers and sisters in Christ, how to deal with the unbelieving world. And again, in everything else, Scripture is very clear how we're to conduct ourselves and renew our mind and change our pattern of thinking to respond to these difficult decisions that we have to come with every day. John 14 says this, Sixteen through 17. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And so we see not only do we need to have discernment that is requiring a proper definition of truth, that discernment is shaped by God's Word and requires a renewing of the mind, but we also see here that discernment is shaped by God's Word and requires being led by the Spirit. Apart from the Spirit, we are utterly 
and completely unable to discern truth from error and right from wrong, right? That's what we just read. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth. But he goes on and says, Whom the world cannot receive. Again, just another clear distinction of how we think so differently than the world. If they cannot receive the Spirit, they cannot think like Christ, they cannot have the mind of Christ, and so they are completely incapable of thinking that way and are totally different from us. And think about this. How is the Spirit uh, um, described, right? The perfecter of our faith, the seal and the promise of our salvation, right? The world cannot receive the Spirit because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you, believer, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Think about the apostles. This is a great example of this. When did the apostles start to respond to all the truth that they had been given from Christ? When did that happen? Right, Acts 2, right? Think about this. They had spent years with Christ. And he on many occasions says, do you not yet understand? Do you not get this yet? Acts 2, right? The Holy Spirit comes down, descends on them, right? Comes down on them. And immediately says that they were brought into remembrance everything that they had been taught. They were able to discern and apply the truths that they had received from Christ for so long. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14 says this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's very clear, right? The reality is that the Spirit is directly tied with the truth of Scripture. As the Spirit reveals to us and allows us to grow in knowledge and to be able to have the mind of Christ. I love how it says this. The natural person cannot understand biblical discernment because they do not have the Spirit. They're totally incapable It's like trying to describe a sunset to a blind person or a symphony to a deaf person. It's futile. It's pointless. It's worthless. It's useless. And so we have to have the Spirit. So discernment, again, is shaped by God's Word and requires a proper definition of truth God is truth. Christ is truth. His word indeed is truth, right? Also requires a renewing of the mind, Romans 12, 2. We have to actively work hard to conform ourselves to the truth that we understand. We have to work hard to be transformed by renewing our minds, by being saturated in God's word. And it also requires being led by the Spirit, the Spirit that separates us from the world, that only the Spirit can guide us and teach us. Again, there are many, many people out there that know the Scriptures better than anybody in here and yet don't believe. Again, 
the reality is the Spirit is directly tied with the truth of Scripture, and we are required to have the Spirit to understand truly what the Scriptures say. To sum it up, in order to be spiritually discerning, we must first have an inward renewal. Everything here is an inward renewal, right? It all starts with the heart and our mind and changing our heart and our mind. We must first be changed on the inside. And Tim Challies says again in his book this, before God will address conduct, he chooses to address character. Once he has molded and shaped our hearts, he is ready to train us in wisdom and understanding. Truth comes first and application of the truth follows later. And so we must know God's truth before we can know God's will. That's so helpful, right? So helpful. Again, it's an inward change before it's an outward change anytime. And that brings us to the next point, which is that discernment is an application of the wisdom found in God's word. This, in short, is simply the working out of what is found in God's word, right? Obeying, right? James says that again, we said this earlier, but not just simply being a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And what does 1 John say about obeying and being uh, obedient to the commands? Well, that's how you will know who is a true follower of Christ, right? Whether they obey or don't obey. By practicing day-to-day choices through the filter of God's word, we can be spiritually discerning. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21-22 says this, But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This term test here can also be um, defined as discern. But discern everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So what can we test? What do you guys think? What, what are some things that we can test? Give me some examples. Our motive. motive. That is a good one. Man, we could just spend all day on that. Sometimes we don't even know our true motives, right? We think we may have the right motives, but we don't. The heart is deceitfully wicked. We can't even fully comprehend it. What else? Attitude? Absolutely. What else? Yep. What else? Absolutely. 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 Yep. Absolutely. Just a simple act of obedience. Absolutely. What else? How you respond to tragedy. Every person in this room will deal with that at some point in their life. How will you respond? How will you respond to a blessing? Absolutely. How will you respond to a blessing? And that's typically tied in with your motives. I'll tell you, having the opportunity to teach and to go through seminary, that is something that you're tested with all the time, is motives. Blessing. People are so gracious. What else? Rebuke, absolutely. When somebody rebukes you, how are you going to respond to that? What else? 
We could just say what it says here, right? Everything. But test everything. Test everything against the scriptures, 1 John. Good place to go to. Test everything against the word of God. Hold fast to the scripture's commands. You're to hold fast to what is good. And only God is good inherently and perfectly. And so we have to hold fast to the scripture, right? 1 John. You also have to test yourself against the scriptures. As you said, your motives, your attitude, your thoughts. It also says here, though, abstain from the things that Scripture warns about. The Scripture is clear about not doing something. Don't put your toe as close to the edge as you possibly can and hope that you don't fall off. Proverbs 7, right, talks about the adulteress. And in that example, it says, run, flee from these things. Test everything against Scripture. And if it says that it's even remotely going to cause you to sin or to dishonor God, abstain from it, run from it. In that moment of discernment. Pray for wisdom and counsel, right? Application of this. Pray for wisdom. Ask God to direct you. James 1.5 says, If anybody lacks wisdom, ask God and it will be given to you freely. It will be given to you without reproach. If you want guidance, if you want discernment, ask God to give it to you. And then prepare yourself for the day. Flip over to Ephesians. Again, these are all applications of the wisdom found in God's Word. We could spend an eternity doing this, and we will. Praise the Lord, right? But we could spend so long talking about different application of the wisdom found in God's Word. Listen to this, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. When you step out of your door, you are going to be bombarded with opportunities that devil is prowling at your door like a lion waiting to devour you, right? And you're going to have to be discerning. So it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Beloved, we have to prepare ourselves for the day. We have to not be in the midst of battle trying to put on the armor of God as 
we're fighting with the schemes of the devil and these principalities that are spiritual. But we need to gird ourselves up, put on the whole armor of God as we prepare to go into battle. So that when we are bombarded with difficult situations and we come to a moment where we have to discern and make a decision, it's informed, it's prepared, it's God-honoring, right? It's not a knee-jerk reaction based on our heart's motives, but it's based on God's words and our affection for Him. Prepare yourself for the day through God's Word. So I wrote down some questions for you guys. And this is by no means my list. I got this list of questions uh, from a sermon that I was listening to a while back from John MacArthur and it was very helpful for me. So I thought I'd put it in here and share this with you guys. You can write this down. I was hoping to have it up there, but I can certainly share it with you if you'd like. But he goes through a list of questions that he asks before making a decision. This had nothing to do with discernment. It was out of Galatians. But he asks himself this list of questions before he makes any decision. And I think this is so helpful. The first question he asks himself is, will this be spiritually beneficial? 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Will this be spiritually beneficial? Is it going to hinder me as a Christian, or is it going to help me grow into greater conformity to Christ? Next, will this edify or strengthen me? 1 Corinthians 10.23 All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Before I make this decision, will this strengthen me? Will this edify me? Will this build me up? All things are lawful, but not all things build up. The next question he asks, will this hinder me from running the race of faith? Will this hinder me from running the race of faith. Hebrews 12, 1-2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This gives us the cost. This is the cost. Christ gave his life to be obedient to the Father. Even in moments where he had to decide, right? Lord, if there's any other cup, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not my will, but your will. Submitting himself to the Father not allowing what his decisions wanted to be to hinder him from running the race of faith. So ask that question of yourself. Next, will it be likely to start a bad habit? 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 6-7. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we may not desire evil as they did, talking about the example of, of, um, as, of unbelievers. 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In other words, they made this a habit. What they were doing became habitual. It was over and over. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That was their pattern of life. So you have to ask yourself, if I'm going to start to do this or if I make this decision, will it likely start a bad habit? Next, will it be consistent with Christ-likeness? Verse John 2.6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Will it be consistent with Christ's likeness? Or will this be like the world? Will it glorify God? 1 Corinthians 10.31, we already alluded to this, but clear again, will it glorify God? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And finally, and this is probably the one that's most overlooked, how will this affect others, both believers and non-believers? 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, you can read all of those chapters. How will this affect others? If I do this or don't do this, how will this affect my brothers and sisters? Or how will this affect my reputation to unbelievers? Will this bring dishonor to the Lord if I do or don't do this? And how will other people perceive this? So again, the ability to discern is given to us from God, right? We've been given the ability to respond to any given situation. And it's required of us as we make both simple and difficult decisions each day. So will you be spiritually discerned? Will you be biblically discerned? Or will you respond with those knee-jerk reactions? Frustrated out of your own heart. Angry out of your own heart. Discouraged, disappointed, right? Or will you take and rely on God's word and respond according to that? Respond according to your affections for God, your love for God. And that's what should drive us, right? Thoughts? Questions? All right. Thank you, guys.